I'm Andrea Lopez Villafania. I'm Andrew Keats. I'm Scott Lewis. We host the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Every Friday, we break down the news we think you should know in San Diego. Things like housing, homelessness, education, election, political drama, the big stories that dominate the news, and the ones that slip under the radar. We also interview local lawmakers, policy experts, and other investigative journalists. The Voice of San Diego podcast, every Friday. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. Hey, y'all. Justin here to follow up on a promise made before we start the show. We are so grateful to everybody who helped us out last month during our Hot Story Summer Fun Drive. We had a dickens of a time between our staff catching the Rona and technical problems, but we are thrilled to be able to thank those who heard our call even after we lost our voice and answered. And those folks are Milo Shapiro, Doug and Alice Diamond, Tim Cole, Victoria Wollum, Jennifer Stiff, Rebecca Goodman, Victoria Chavez, Dana Weimar, Renee Powell, Fran Chadwick, Leslie Ferguson, Matthew Christian Schurer, Eileen Zimmerman, Jacob Peterson, Laura Preble, Joe Levitt, and Kirsten Hernandez. Thank you all so much for your generosity. You are the reason we are able to do programs like this. And without further ado, now on with the show. From So Say We All in San Diego, welcome to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast. I'm Justin Tudmill. Living in the manicured suburbs of Del Cerro, where the Hillcrest of Tomorrow, as I like to think of it as, has really done a number on me over the years. I woke up here one day and realized I had fully become the guy who yells at cars that drive too fast. I am the guy who sets out trail cameras to discover which local critter has been getting into the cat food. But the seedy underbelly truly reared its head when I was introduced to the social media website Nextdoor, which for those of you who don't know, is an online community for absolutely terrified white people to alert their neighborhood to suspicious persons or to say horrible things about the little old lady up the block whose terrier made the unforgivable choice to relieve itself on someone's water-guzzling lawn. It's a powerful machine that drafts everybody on it into a militia and makes them all targets of suspicion at the same time. It's a pretty fascinating business strategy. So this episode and the next, we'll be trying to introduce a little bit of an antidote to that festering pit of pettiness and paranoia with wholesome revelatory true stories from our August 2014 showcase, Neighborhood Watch. And first up, we'll be hearing Suzanne Hoyam's piece, The Screamer. Here's Suzanne. I'd like to think of myself as a good neighbor. I live by the motto, you don't have to be friends with your neighbors, just friendly. I make sure I learn their names, I keep my conversations polite, minimal, and usually about the weather. I break down my cardboard boxes, and I take in my trash cans in a timely manner. And for the most part, I keep to myself. I've been living in my current apartment for over a year. It's a pretty typical SoCal design, with a larger house in front and two apartments above garages in the back. There's even a little studio tucked away downstairs next to the garages. We all share a grassy courtyard reserved for barbecues and small parties. And you see, this is my first big girl apartment. I rented by myself without a roommate or a boyfriend. It's just me and my six-year-old daughter and our cat. <laughs> the neighbor I have directly next to me is Lori. She is nice and quiet and works from home and she has three indoor cats. She's the cat lady. 
The studio below is a revolving door of tenets and is currently inhabited by a sweet 18-year-old student named Liz. She is constantly planting a garden and then killing said garden. <laughs> the oldest residents on the property live in the front house, a couple named Amber and Bill. Amber is about my age, mid-30s. Bill is my father's age, around 60. He is retired and keeps a tidy yard and loves his young girlfriend. Sometimes I see Amber jogging on the street, hair pulled back and sweaty. She's wearing little shorts that say juicy or pink across the butt. <laughs> Bill is following dutifully behind, walking their little dog. Sometimes Amber sunbathes in the courtyard, covered in oil, lying on her belly, bikini top undone. Bill will always bring her out a cold beer or parliament light. She once told me the story of how they met. Bill's brother was married to Amber's aunt. She grew up calling him Uncle Bill. <laughs> when she turned 21, she announced to her family that she had been in love with him since she was a little girl. They've been together ever since. They are a strange but loyal couple. Amber and I have a very passive-aggressive relationship, sometimes aimed at my personal life. You date really good-looking guys. Thanks, Amber. I mean, it's so surprising. <laughs> or, why do you date guys your age? I mean, you should find an older man, one that can take care of you. Sometimes her barbs are aimed at my cat. You know your cat has worms. She's always covered in them. They're really contagious. I wouldn't see... I wouldn't be surprised if your daughter has them already. Really? I'll get her checked out. I acted concerned, but was sure my cat didn't have worms, because just like any asshole cat, Gloria was sure to stick her butt in my face on a daily basis. <laughs> she's always hungry. She has worms. I'm not saying you don't feed her, but she's always clawing at my back door at 4 a.m. when I get up to make my smoothies. I just feed her anyway. I don't know what else to do. Huh, well, that's funny because every morning at 4 a.m., she wakes me up to go outside. I'm now growing slightly enraged. I have been woken up every morning for, at 4 a.m. for the past year because this lady feeds my cat. <laughs> it's Pavlovian. You're the reason why she wakes me up at 4 a.m. We're both smiling, but there's a tension. Oh, honey, I don't mean to attack you. I just want to talk. Do you want a beer or a glass of wine? We never get to hang out. She slowly twirls a gold necklace around her finger. <sighs> um, sure, wine would be nice. Bill comes from out of nowhere with a plastic chair and a cold glass of Chardonnay as if he's been waiting patiently all along. <laughs> Hey, Bill, will you roll a joint? Want to smoke a little pot, sweetie? Uh, I guess. Sure, that would be nice, too. I am definitely crossing the boundaries of friendly neighborhood behavior, but I feel that this is Amber's grand gesture for always being slightly cunty towards me. 
You know, Bill and I used to live in your apartment before we moved into the front house, and I swear there is something about the way this courtyard is structured, but you can hear everything that comes from up there. I mean, <laughs> Bill and I used to fuck in your bathtub. From that bathroom, you can hear it all the way down in the courtyard. She takes a drag from the joint. I am stoned and a wee bit white wine buzzed. I can feel cool prickles move up my spine and down my arms. I am silent and Bill has mysteriously disappeared. Actually, I've been meaning to talk to you about this for a while and you seem like the kind of gal I can say anything to. Of course, Amber, go ahead. <laughs> well. We can all hear you fucking. Whew. I am reeling. I begin to do the math. Technically, I only get to fuck two days a week. The days my daughter is with her dad. Out of 168 hours in a week, I get to get down for maybe four of those hours, conservatively. That's like 2% of the week. How can everyone hear me porking in that small window of time? math and ratios and science and stuff. Amber continues, I mean, last Sunday, you were really going at it. And Liz had her whole family visiting, her mom, her dad, her brother. She's still a virgin, you know, and they're Catholics. Oh my God. And you know Ben, the one that used to live in the studio? Yeah, the, the one that moved out last summer? He used to call you Suzanne the Screamer. And when uh, guys hear that stuff, they, you know, she makes the crude jacking off gesture. Suzanne the Screamer, no wonder his girlfriend never looked at me. And she didn't stop there. Lori can hear you through the wall. You know you share that wall. She's always asking me if that guy you're dating has a magic cock. Ugh, gross. I'm flushed, I'm dying. I had no idea. Honestly, I'm mortified. Yeah, right, you knew. Sometimes you do it with your front door open, just a screen door is closed. My mind races back. Do I? Shit. Come on, you had no idea? No, really, no idea, I swear to God, none. Sometimes we'll be out here smoking cigs and we have to go inside. It makes me uncomfortable, and you know turns Bill on. She takes a long drag off her parliament light. Oh, no, 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 not Bill, not balding, wrinkly Uncle Bill. <laughs> I've been blindsided, mentally heading to my safe place. I am mortified. I am so, so sorry. I never meant to make anyone uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, don't be mortified. At least you're having fun. We all like sex. Just close your windows and keep it down. You are really loud. <laughs> so you all have been talking about my loud sex for the past year. My mind races back. There are 365 days in a year. How many of those hours and how many of those days have I been obnoxious? Apparently enough to warrant this conversation. Yeah. Everyone asks me to confront you about it. You're such a cool chick. I knew you'd take it well. Wow, uh, should I apologize to Lori and Liz? Slowly running her finger along the edge of her wine glass. I don't think it's necessary, just don't do it anymore. 
Uh, will you tell them that you talked to me and let them know I am truly sorry? I need to go inside. Thanks for letting me know, Amber. You're a really good neighbor. I barely make it out of the chair. I am the epitome of embarrassment. My hands shaking. I feel gross. I thank her for the wine and the pot and make it to my apartment. Of course, I'm glad I got it out. Don't worry, you're fine. Sex is nothing to be ashamed of, she screams after me. <laughs> I close the door and collapse to the ground. I go fetal. Curled up, I first text my former downstairs neighbor. I am so sorry, I did not know you could hear me having sex. Second, I send out a mass text to my closest friends. OMG, I was just told I'm the loud sex neighbor, Suzanne the Screamer. <laughs> then I update my Facebook status with, I just found out I'm that neighbor. A comment immediately pops up and simply says, loud sex. <laughs> Everyone knows. I then call the young gentleman I'm dating, the one with the magic cock. My voice is a whisper, cause they can hear everything you know. <laughs> oh my God, I'm the loud sex neighbor. They heard us last Sunday, Liz and her whole family was over and they heard us every time. Those Catholics must think I'm a huge slut. Really? All I hear is his voice swelling with pride. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm coming over. <laughs> I remained in that tiny whispering ball for a few minutes. A nice, cold panic attack had settled over me. Smoking pot was a bad idea. <laughs> Being stoned left me ill-prepared for the amount of shame I felt. I lived to be the friendly, quiet neighbor, but instead I just made everyone really uncomfortable. When walking my daughter to the park, do they secretly shake their finger at me? When I get the mail in the afternoon, do they mutter whore under their breath? <laughs> what is the proper protocol? Do I bake sorry I'm the loud sex neighbor cookies and leave tiny packages on each doorstep? Starbucks gift cards? <laughs> do I now sneak the boys in through the alley only at night? Surprisingly, all my friends laughed it off. They all said, great sex is a gift, few enjoy. I should be proud of myself. They all had similar loud sex, bad neighbor stories to relate. A badge of kinky honor, virtually patting me on the back. I guess I'm lucky all my friends are just a bunch of beautiful perverts. <laughs> I didn't get an eviction notice the next day for being a wanton hussy. No one spray painted tart on my door. I still talk about the weather with my neighbors and let out the occasional orgasmic scream, but just not as loud. Suzanne Hoyam, everybody. Suzanne Hoyam, she's a repeat offender around here, so you'll be hearing from her again soon. Next up, Benjamin Hardy and his story, Ulster Watch. Here's Benjamin. I was born in Dublin, but moved to the States when I was six months old. So I'm an American, but I still have Irish family on my father's side. A few years ago, I returned to Ireland to bury my grandfather. To the beautiful Emerald Isle, although my family's, uh, father's family would never refer to Ireland as that, or even as Ireland for that matter. 
To them, it was Ulster. They were Northern Irish Protestants, and they'd be happy to remind you, should you ever forget. My father's first experience with the neighborhood watch when he was a young boy in the Protestant coastal town of Newton Arts. One day, while coming home from school, he saw a group of armed, black, uniformed men lingering outside a house. My father had never seen anyone in Ireland brandish this kind of weaponry. When he came home, he told his father what he saw. My grandfather then told my father to come with him, and they made their way to the house. The house belonged to a Sergeant Jack Taylor of the B Specials, someone my grandfather knew. The B Specials were a paramilitary civilian group formed to assist the police in enforcement of the law. My grandfather informed Jack that he and his men scared his son, and he, could he reassure him that everything was all right? Taylor looked down at my father and said, Don't worry, Raymond. We only shoot Catholics. <laughs> On the way home, my granddad told him, I want you to remember what you saw today. My grandfather hated Catholics, but he knew injustice when he saw it. My grandfather was actually an Englishman from Kent. He moved to Northern Ireland because of its beauty, even if he wasn't particularly fond of the people. He was a mechanic turned shopkeeper, a World War II veteran from the North African and Italian campaigns. He was smart, book smart, but had no check on his emotions, which led him to say hateful things. Things like asking my father, what was it like to have a Catholic son? He was livid about the way I was raised. My father frequently had to calm him down. With my grandfather, rage would come first and justification followed later. In that way, he was very much an Ulster proddy. When the Irish Troubles began, the Troubles being years of unrest between the Catholic and Protestant populations, every neighborhood became a microcosm of the national crisis. Individuals would talk about Catholic or Protestant loved ones to show that they weren't bigots, but sure enough, the rage slipped in. The love was forgotten, and these once cherished people fell into the designation of enemy. My grandfather had never quite forgiven my father for marrying an Irish-American woman and raising his two sons Catholic. Dad had been kicked out of the clan more than once for this transgression. I think the only reason they forgave him the first time is because it felt so good kicking him out, they wanted to do it again. <laughs> my mother met my father at the Abbey Theater in Dublin in the late 70s. She was the exotic costume designer straight out of Stanford University. And my father was the slightly less exotic Northern Irish Protestant actor in the theater company. Irish affirmative action stating you had at least one Northerner in the troupe. Their meeting would have been more romantic if my mother hadn't almost been killed in an anti-Irish bomb explosion in downtown Dublin. The bombers were defending Ulster from IRA. It was literally a situation having turned left instead of right that saved her life. My mother described to me how during the explosion the glass rippled like water. I couldn't quite get a sense of how that looked until I saw the Matrix. <laughs> my grandmother was Northern Irish. Whenever I visualize her, I'm not think not of a conversation we had or a setting, but rather that of a woman looking down at her embroidery, stitching out her latest scarf, meditative and absorbed. She was a friendly woman, always included the word dear whenever she spoke. Once while watching Reservoir Dogs, I heard her cluck her tongue and mildly say, those dogs certainly like to say the word fuck, don't they, dear? <laughs> I glanced over at her and she never even looked up. The support from my grandfather was absolute. If there was an argument, and there were many, she would support whatever his position was. In fact, I think the only time she ever refused him was on his deathbed. 
He asked her if she wanted to come with him. Her response, a pat on the hand, a, a no, dear, you go ahead and do that yourself. <laughs> so I returned to the island of my birth to bury the man who loved slash hated me. I've been told to keep quiet and that the Northern Irish had their own way of doing things. Police were little more than referees and that every town in Ulster had its own vigilante club or neighborhood watch. Northern Ireland boasted the lowest crime rate in the world, although not surprising considering that, for instance, if you were caught stealing someone's Mazda, you were capped, as in you were shot in the kneecap and limped around for the rest of your life. The punishments only grew more extreme from there. My grandmother gave me a tour when I arrived, exposed me to the rich cultural landscape of the North, while also showing me all the buildings that had been bombed over the years. Now there's the post office, dear. The IRA bombed that seven years ago. And there's the social services station. That was bombed five years ago. And that's the butcher shop. It was bombed three years ago. <laughs> oh, that wasn't the IRA, dear. That was a radical vegetarian group. <laughs> True story. <laughs> My father took me to a Protestant fishing village that was famous for its self-governance. There were loyalist, anti-Irish, anti-Catholic slogans everywhere. My father explained to me the giant red hand shone prominently in the middle of town. That, son, is the red hand of Ulster. Uh-huh, I responded. And what exactly is the red hand of Ulster, dad? Well, Ben, the red hand of Ulster is the symbol of Protestant Ireland. The myth is that two men were racing from Scotland to Ireland by boat. They agreed whomever reached the shores of Ulster first would be king. When one of the men realized he was losing, he chopped off his hand and threw it to the beach, thereby winning the race. <laughs> a bloody hand lying on the shore became a symbol of our people. <laughs> Certainly gives you insight about our kinfolk, doesn't it? <laughs> I also discovered the village had a very proactive neighborhood watch. You see, years ago, the townsfolk figured out that they could enforce the law just fine by themselves. Once they came to that logical conclusion, they did the only reasonable thing and promptly burned down their police station. <laughs> Again, no joke. I asked my dad, how do the different neighborhood groups figure out who is Catholic and who is Protestant just by looking at someone? They don't, he responded. They don't recognize you, the locals will just put a beating on you. I've had Protestant friends attacked by other parties just because they are outsiders. Made sense. The church that held my grandfather's service was beautiful and intimate, which just accentuated my feelings of being out of place with my extended family of strangers. One of the few, th one of the few that I knew was my fellow pallbearer's distant uncle, Kelly. He was a super, which is a derogatory term left over from the Irish famine. It refers to an Irish Celt who changed their religion from a Catholic to Protestant in exchange for a bowl of soup. I remind myself not to mention that as I walked up to greet him. Okay, Ben, don't say super, don't say super, don't say super. Hey, Uncle Kelly, it's super to meet you. While the service was going on, I tried to work out my feelings over my grandfather's death. It was complicated. It was a shame to see my grandfather pass, but it also felt like a burden lifted from our family's shoulders. He hated that I was raised Catholic, but he also seemed proud of me. 
He'd often take me out to eat and would chat for hours. He wanted to be in our lives, but got angry at the slightest provocation. Making every family interaction an intense affair, nothing was ever simple with him. I was carrying my grandfather's coffin to the hearse. I saw one of the old neighborhood watch clubs across the street. I'd seen that vigilante's group parade the day before. It was an unusual parade. There might not have been floats, but there were instruments. There were musicians. They marched in procession, but what stood out was that no one was smiling. It consisted of hard men blowing horns and banging war drums while sporting prison-style loyalist hats on their weld-muscled arms. Imagine if the Aryan Brotherhood had a band camp and you'll get the idea. <laughs> These were clearly men of violence. I thought what my grandfather would have made of it. Would he approve, disapprove, feel proud, feel ashamed? Would he have seen himself in their eyes or in mine? Would he have asked them to own up to the fear they are creating amongst my family? No answer would be forthcoming. I felt my grandfather's weight dig painfully into my shoulder as I looked on his country's legacy and the aftershocks it dealt my grandfather and everyone else in its wake. Me and my grandfather's relationship would be like that, him and his whole family, his neighborhood, or even the whole damned country. Complicated and unresolved. Ben Hardy, ladies and gentlemen. That was Benjamin Hardy. And coming in third and taking us home today, your next story, snap your fingers for Julia Mixer and her piece, Bucolic Propaganda. It's a little discouraging, you know? You move into a new neighborhood, ready for a new start, with shards of glass broken in your forced march, stuck among others, already in your heart. Angry dismantling, all boxed up, loud, among memories. You are looking for peace. You unpack the boxes. No, you don't. You unpack two bottles of Chuck and relax into the new view, the unfettered you. Time to breathe. Put the past in the past. It's a pastoral change of scene. And it's quiet in the parkland, except when the city guys with a mowing machine meant to take down cornrows mow the grass for the parade of leash dogs who pee the whole thing into an interesting yellow. And it all should be great, just great. There are castles in the sky. Justin Bieber lives nearby. Some neighbors even have pet deer. It's a kind of place where you can go to the butcher and get your body sculpted virtually for free. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Choice cuts. Brew pubs abound. So of course, some guy walks into your home carrying a plastic cup. You start directing him to a bar only he says, hey, I need someone to piss in a cup 
for my drug test tomorrow. You sent him to the bar for a hoppy urine-filled sample. Specialty of the house. Your friends now call your home. Peace in a cup. You were hoping for just peace. So you open a box. Faded wedding pictures. Toss it to the curb. Open another box. The 10K lawyer's bill. Shredder. A third box brings the picture of you, stupidly, unknowingly, bouncing his mistress's baby. You can't breathe. What next, sweet Jesus, what next? You are turning inside out. And so the living ends and the watching begins. No, you haven't been alive for years. You notice guys on others' bikes trolling for treasures, and within a month, your flowers are stolen off the stoop. And you notice old guys walking stiff to find others more limber than themselves. They disappear in the low trees for shaded rendezvous. And then the chairs are stolen from your yard. And even the decorative stones are taken from the parkway, exposing plain dirt. Then your parents come to see the new place. Stepping over a cracked sidewalk, they ask about the party you had last night. And you think of your cat, and you think, party? What party? Then you see your mother stepping over little bits of a Trojan that never was a horse. <laughs> oh, party for hire. Then the paper is full of a description of the dead girl discovered on the golf course naked. You check, you check, you check the lock on your door, and now you know for sure, it's the city. Fuck, it's the city. The season shifts into early nightfall, and cars drive slowly along the park. They stop, then go, go real fast as the person in the park recedes into the darkness. All you see is the tiny glow of a cigarette fading right before another stop-and-go pickup of something the guys who dope the planets start parking in front of your house, their windows tinted darker than everyone else's, and you think, fuck, it's the city. And you get jealous of all your neighbors who live not two blocks away and enjoy their lovely porches and unpacked homes, the kind of places where you could bounce a baby. All you have are 59 boxes of flashbacks and rubble. You'll never have that baby Unrequited anger returns. Are you losing your shit? Will it join your heart? The idea comes as you watch the drive-by crowd during commercial breaks from the History Channel showing World War II propaganda campaigns. You think, hmm, if it worked there, it could work here. It worked on you. Let's wait until this. Let's wait until that. Let's wait until the other thing. It works in war, and this is war. You're fighting for peace. You contemplate the propaganda. What will move the people? Not their hearts, but their asses. What will get them to stop parking and dealing, driving and doping, walking and fucking the too young, too diseased, too crazed? What can you write that will get them to stop and go away? Just leave the pretty park to the babies who deserve to believe the world is kind and safe before they have to experience all the dirt. What can you write that is persuasive 
and real and insane. And then it comes to you. It's not about what you can write, but what you can do. You can be a do-gooder, a do-better. You can be a do-er. You can be a neighborhood watch captain. So, be a self-appointed military-style vigilante guard of the park and the street and the kids and the spirit of the dead girl. So you write a short note with tremendous compassion and great authority. You represent a committee of one. You write, dear neighbor, and you smile, remembering the doper and the dealer and the love-deprived, depraved were all somebody's neighbors once. You write, dear neighbor, we wanted to let you know our vice and narcotic squad has requested your cooperation in parking your cars in your driveway rather than on the street at night. They have been monitoring illegal nighttime activity in the park, collecting license plate numbers for quite some time. They now hope to remove from their lists those license plate numbers belonging to neighbors. Please park your car in your driveway for the next several weeks while this important surveillance continues. If you have questions, bring them to our next meeting where we will review the number of successful arrests to date. Most sincerely yours. Your heart is racing. This note seems authoritarian. And you have never been that, ever. <laughs> this note has some teeth. It could even sound a bit threatening, but in a very conciliatory way. It sounds like things are proceeding in an orderly fashion when nothing is proceeding at all except for thefts of lives and homes in a one sweet neighborhood where people got to know their neighbor and walked home even at night without ending up dead. So you get into your dark clothes. You put on a dark cap. You carry your handwritten card signed, Neighborhood Watch Captain, lest the readers miss the faux authority. First, you find the cars with the two darkly tinted windows and leave notes there. You find the abandoned, nondescript sedans with a little too much wear and make them more notable. You put the notes on the cars of the overnight people who just disappear into the dark to return just at sunrise. And then you repeat the whole 10-minute walk three times over the course of one month. You leave the notes with their most sincerely ending right side up on the windshields. You have lost your shit. But in the first week, the overnight hungover Parker disappears. Then you see the dark tinted windows move down a street. So you put the notes on them down there. They too disappear. And then you realize the parade of drive slows, stop and goes ends. The ones who look for love still come, but less. Everything quiets down. You quiet down. The thefts continue. But the park returns. You return. You resign from your watch captain group of one. <laughs> you return, most importantly, to the present. You unpack slowly and leave the boxes under the swagger of a Craigslist ad. They also disappear fast. You can pack it out. You can pack what you don't want right out of your life. You find peace in the disappearance of the bastards. You stop patrolling for the babies. Boxes are exchanged for places you can breathe because this is the city. You're fucking right.
This is the city. Julia Mixer. That was part one of Neighborhood Watch. You heard from Suzanne Hoyam, Benjamin Hardy, and Julia Mixer. Be sure to tune in next episode for part two. If you want to learn more about So Say We All, including how to get in touch, upcoming live shows, and more, pop over to our website, sosayweallonline.com. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, if you haven't already, and do consider leaving us a rating and a review. It helps for reasons that only the almighty algorithm understands. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Joe Hudick is our production manager. Jennifer Corley is our program director. And Brent Hanafy is our social media manager who keeps the kids in the know. All of the original music you heard today is provided by the inspired Kurt Conan of AMFM Music, except for this exit strong, graciously given to us for use by 1032. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Prebis Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. We would love to have you as one of those members. Just go over to sosayweallonline.com slash support or find our Patreon, patreon.com slash sosayweallonline. Either way, we would deeply appreciate that love. Thanks so much for listening. The reader completes the writer after all, so let's talk again soon. Bye.